Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The advertisements you see on social media are chosen by algorithms. New research suggests that Facebook ads discriminate on the basis of race. But who to blame? Are the programmers biased? Or does their software just reflect the biases in society? We ask how to maintain a level playing field in an age of algorithms. And slot machines bring in a surprising fraction of a casino's take. But young people just don't flock to them like prior generations did. The solution? Make one-armed bandits more like video games. That turns out to be trickier than it sounds. First up, though. Today marks a historic occasion in the political history of Libya. Today, we are told that Gaddafi is dead. It's been eight years since Muammar Gaddafi was deposed as leader of Libya and killed. The country has been in turmoil ever since. A UN-backed so-called unity government holds fragile power in the capital of Tripoli. Now, the country is in very real danger of descending into an all-out civil war. General Khalifa Haftar is leading his rebel troops from the eastern part of the country to the capital. 21 people are reported to have been killed. General Haftar is a former field marshal in Colonel Gaddafi's army, who helped him seize power in 1969, but also helped remove him more than 40 years later. Calls for a ceasefire to evacuate civilians have so far been ignored. Khalifa Haftar, the warlord who controls the east of the country, has pushed initially south. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. Taking most of the southern part of the country and is now pushing up towards Tripoli um, and has launched an offensive on the capital, which is controlled by a UN-backed government of national unity. And right now there's lots of fighting around the outskirts of the city, not much fighting in the city, um, and lots of fighting around the disused airport. So you say there is this UN-backed government. Is it is it fully in control of Libya? No, it's not even really in control of the capital. It relies for security on militias in and around Tripoli. It doesn't really provide any services to the people of Tripoli, and it certainly doesn't control the rest of the country. And what about um, Khalifa Haftar? What, what are his objectives? Well, he thinks he's the only person in Libya who can unify and stabilize the country He has launched offensives against Islamists and jihadists in cities like Benghazi. And then he pushed further south in order to really stabilize that area, which had been overrun with folks in the people smuggling trade and the drug smuggling trade. And now he's pushing into Tripoli under the same pretenses. Of course, Tripoli is run by a UN-backed government, which sort of belies uh, his intentions. How do you mean? Haftar has a habit of painting anyone who is against him as a terrorist, a jihadist, as an extremist. That's not quite the case. That's certainly not the case with the UN-backed government in Tripoli. And the militias in and around Tripoli, and certainly the militias in Misrata, would not consider themselves extremists. What you really have is just a country that is full of armed groups, full of militias, each fighting for their own little patch of land and wealth. So how did General Haftar come to be in this position, to to think of himself as the one man to unite the country? Haftar has a pretty interesting background. He was a 
general under Gaddafi, fell out with Gaddafi, and eventually moved to America and worked with the CIA for a time in several attempts to overthrow Gaddafi. When the revolution broke out in 2011 against Gaddafi, he came back, helped the rebels to overthrow him. And then he sort of retreated for a while. In 2014, as the country was sort of falling back into civil conflict, he came back and took over what he called the Libyan National Army and sort of painted himself as just the one person who could really unite the country. And so why has he made this this big aggressive move now if he's felt that way for all that time? That's a really good question, and that's what everyone is trying to figure out. I mean, he moved south, and he moved south pretty easily, took over most of the south pretty easily. So that probably emboldened him. But this comes at a really odd time, this offensive on Tripoli, because you had the U.N. Secretary General actually in Tripoli as the offensive was launched. The Secretary General was trying to organize a peace conference for the middle of this month. So it's a bit of weird timing, but it's sort of what many people see as sort of the final bet for Haftar. This is his final push that after this sort of diplomacy takes over. So this is his last chance to sort of really settle things militarily. And do you think it'll work? What are the odds you think he can take Tripoli at the rate he's going? I think it'd be very tough. There was a thought that perhaps he could sort of buy off militias in and around Tripoli. But what we've seen actually is a lot of the militias are actually uniting. You have the militias from Misrata coming in saying they will defend the capital and they're very powerful. I mean, if nothing else, this is going to be a long and bloody campaign if it continues. And how has the the international community responded to this? So the international community has come together and, and called for a stop to the fighting. But to this point, they've been rather disunited. I mean, you have a number of parties that are behind Haftar, countries like Egypt, countries like the UAE, France sells them weapons, Russia as well. And for different reasons. I mean, the UAE and Egypt are anti-Islamists and they see Haftar as an anti-Islamist force. France has oil interest in Libya that they think Haftar is best place to protect. And, and Russia sees a fellow authoritarian. And then you have other countries like America, like Italy, like Britain. These are all countries that helped overthrow Gaddafi, helped back the rebels that overthrew Gaddafi. And they have put their efforts behind the UN-backed government in Tripoli. I mean, really, Libya is a bit of a forgotten country. After the overthrow of Gaddafi, everyone just sort of backed off and forgot about it. In fact, Barack Obama has said that was one of the biggest mistakes of his presidency, was forgetting about Libya. But it seems that there, there is some level of American involvement there, and there are even reports now of U.S. troops being pulled out. I mean, how, how involved is America? America is involved in as much as it sees a sort of counter-terrorism interest in Libya. So it's helped with the fight against Islamic State in Libya and other jihadist groups. And then you also have European powers who are quite interested in Libya, uh, both for counter-terrorism reasons, but also to stop the migrant smuggling that occurs across the Mediterranean. So you have countries that are involved, but they're sort of all after their own interests, and they're not really working together to sort of help the UN-backed government in Tripoli take hold. Roger, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The world is increasingly run on algorithms. These invisible lists of rules decide how much your flights cost, what your next recommended TV program is, even perhaps who you go on dates and fall in love with. Social media companies such as Facebook have made vast fortunes using algorithms to serve up advertisements. Senator, we run ads. But new research has found that the software Facebook uses to distribute those ads has a problem. There was some research put online by a group of researchers at Northeastern USC and an advocacy firm called Upwork. And they were studying and measuring Facebook's ad distribution system, the automatic system that Facebook uses to send ads to the right people. Hal Hudson is The Economist's technology correspondent. What they found is that even if the ads that you craft as an advertiser are completely neutral, they're not saying, I want to send this to only white people or only black people or only people who live in this zip code or that zip code, Facebook's own advertising system is taking it upon itself automatically to deliver these adverts to a skewed audience, more white people, more black people, depending on the content of the ad, depending on the picture, depending on the price if you're selling something. And the reason this is worrying is because it means that Facebook gigantic ad network is discriminatory inherently. He's been reporting on the bias built into Facebook's algorithms. If I place two ads that are otherwise identical for, say, a house for sale or for rent or whatever, um, the price is the same, the text in the ad is the same, and the only thing that's different is the picture. And in one picture, it's a white family, and in one picture, it's a black family. That ad will be delivered differently to people depending only on the picture. And this is because Facebook is using artificial intelligence and machine vision technology to analyze the picture, see what's in it, and then match it with people who it thinks are most likely to engage highly with it. So this means that if I'm a real estate agency who just happens to use a lot of you know, stock pictures of white families in my ads, what's happening is that those ads are being delivered less often to black people. And the, the concern is that this is excluding black people and other minorities. It's not just about black people, but the study was mostly about black versus white. The concern is that Facebook's advertising system is excluding people from opportunity. And is there an implication that that's intentional in some ways? Is simply a a more successful advertising strategy for them? Uh, No, there's zero implication that it's intentional. It's completely obvious that it's unintentional. There's no real reason that Facebook would want to introduce discrimination on purpose. The reason it has happened is slightly difficult to get one's head around. But effectively, it is that Facebook has optimized its entire ad distribution system, the software and the networks that look at ads and send them out to the right people at the right time. That is all optimized to get Facebook users to look at those ads. Facebook wants engagement. It wants you to be paying attention to the ads that it sends to you, that people pay it to send to you. And so the whole system is built around that. And it just turns out that humans engage in a way that is discriminatory. And when you measure their engagement and you say, right, on past trends, this is what's going to work for engagement, it turns out that you're also introducing bias. How is this so different from, um, I have a particular demographic I'm aiming to sell this, you know, luxury watch to and, you know, very much tailoring what you do in order to get that message out? 
So two things. The first is that this is not about luxury watches. It's about ads for housing and jobs, uh, particularly. Also, credit is also another thing that there can be ads for that can be discriminatory. America as a society doesn't really mind if you target high-end jewelry ads to a certain group of people that might happen to be white more so than black, simply for the fact that because of the fact that in America white people tend to be richer than black people on average. The sort of consumer good targeting doesn't matter. But the key point is that yes, discrimination and targeting are kind of like two sides of the same coin. By, it, by definition, if I'm saying I want to send to these people, you're saying I don't want to send to those people. This is a real problem. And the question is how and whether targeting can continue without being discriminatory. And it, it looks like the answer is basically like really ease off on the targeting when it comes to things that were described to me by one of the people I spoke to for the story as like life opportunity adverts, things that really matter in your life, like housing and jobs. There is a set of rules in the United States called disparate impact, which essentially says that even if you didn't mean to discriminate, it's still illegal. And the reason that this was introduced is because it became very easy for landlords to say, oh, I didn't mean to exclude black people when I advertised to rent my room. I just put it in the postcodes that I like that have like people who I thought could afford it. And it turns out that it's all white people in those neighborhoods. And so it, it became super easy to just like abstract away how and why you discriminated. So the rule is just like, if you discriminate, that's wrong. It's Facebook's responsibility, but it's maybe not so much their fault. And so what do you think the, the, the smart way forward is to, because ultimately this is yet another question of what's right for the world versus what's right for these companies. I think that probably the biggest fix would be for companies like Facebook to find a way to hire more diverse minds to work on these problems. You can imagine that even though it's not the software engineers injecting the bias, if you had had more people of color on your staff, for instance, they might have sort of thought about this. They might have been like, well, wait, you know, if we optimize for sending ads to people who are going to click and it's ads for like housing, then, you know, they might have been able to see the steps that led to the discrimination in a way that a bunch of white people who've had relatively privileged lives going to Ivy Leagues clearly did not. They, they did not. They missed that. And so, you know, it's at least an option that a more diverse set employee and staff set would have spotted these problems before they'd even happened. And that would have been good for literally everyone. The second thing is that Facebook needs to, and really to be fair to them already, is trying to open up to outside researchers. Alan Mislove, he's like the world expert on measuring tech systems now, um, but he's doing it all sort of by hacking in from the outside, you know, like it's it's like astronomy compared to what it should be. It should be like biology with a microscope and a thing under the plate. He's having to work from a real distance. And I think that for Facebook to fix itself, it needs outside help and it needs outside researchers to independently go and say, oh, well, we found these problems. And there, there's indications that they're letting that happen too. So I actually think the diversity of staff thing is, is the hardest and most important problem. I mean, in a push to reduce bias, I mean, can a an algorithm be designed bias-free? No, absolutely not. Humans are all biased. We've all got cognitive biases. If you go to the Wikipedia page of cognitive biases, it is very, very long and very in-depth, and it will make you feel extremely insecure about yourself as a human being. Um, I suggest all listeners do it. It's really interesting. But the the bigger point is that it doesn't matter if we don't de-bias the algorithms. What matters is that we have standards for how systems that operate in society work, baselines, kind of like do not go below this line kind of thing. And above that, you know, we're going to accept a little bit of discrimination. We don't really care who gets to see the adverts for shoes. We do really care who gets to see the adverts for housing. And so it's not about making bias-free algorithms. It's about accepting that, you know, humans are biased and making sure that we don't propagate the worst bits of ourselves onto each other in a sort of repeating loop for all of the future. Hal, thanks very much for your time. Sure, Jason. Good to talk to you.
Colombia is on a historic path to peace. After more than half a century of conflict, its revolutionary army has demobilized and disarmed. On The Economist Asks, our interview show, my colleague Anne McElvoy speaks to former Colombian president and Nobel laureate Juan Manuel Santos. They chat about the peace process, how to resolve tensions in neighboring Venezuela, and the economics of illegal drugs. The drug trade will never disappear as long as uh, people in London or in New York consume. This is a business that uh, unfortunately is driven by the demand. And uh, where there is demand, there will be supply, especially if prohibition uh, increases the uh, profits for the mafias that control the business. I just read the last biography of Winston Churchill, and I, I loved an anecdote that appears in this biography. Uh, when he went to the U.S. through Canada during Prohibition. And uh, he asked for a drink, and of course they said, this is prohibited. And he, and he said, this is a very strange country. These huge profits that are made with the liquor sales, here they allow these profits to go to the mafias. In uh, my country, and the, in the U.K., we uh, give those uh, profits to the Treasury. And I think he was quite right. The Economist Asks is out every Friday. Find it wherever you listen. Here on the show, we've been asking our journalists to drop in with numbers, indicators, and statistics that they've come across in the course of their reporting. Benjamin Sutherland writes about all sorts of things for The Economist, and he's brought me one. Benjamin, what number have you brought? Two-thirds. Hmm. I, I was expecting a whole number. Uh, Two-thirds two of what? Two-thirds of all gambling revenue at casinos in the United States and Europe comes from slot machines, percentage that's a lot higher than many people would have expected. Well, exactly. There's there's all those tables, uh, the poker tables, roulette wheels, craps tables. Exactly. And, and, and the table games play a far bigger role in, in much of Asia, but in the United States and Europe, it's essentially the slot machines that are king. Right. But that seems to be changing? The younger generation, millennials, haven't shown much interest in playing slot machines, and there's been something of a panic in the industry to try and figure out how in the world can they get younger millennial players. And so what's the answer? Well, one of the things that they've looked at is to introduce an element of skill into slot machines to make them essentially like video games with the idea being that millennials and other younger people have grown up playing video games. There's an excitement. There's a challenge. There's a skill. I mean, that sounds simple enough. The better you are at the video game, the more you could win. It seems pretty straightforward. It does, but it hasn't proven to be straightforward. For starters, jurisdictions have been reluctant to allow skill to be included in those games. Regulators have been concerned that this is going to lead to greater addiction and uh, the so-called illusion of control that many gambling addicts have. They feel that if they dress a certain way or or, or, or roll the dice a certain way, they, they can control uh, their chances of winning. Of course, that's not the case. And, and uh, regulators have been hesitant. However, in Nevada in 2015, they changed the law. And so those games have been introduced in, in Nevada and New Jersey followed suit shortly thereafter. 
And, and I suppose the idea here is that if it's a skill-based thing, then you'd want to sit there and if you are really good at the game, you simply do better than the person next to you who's not so good at the game. Yeah, so well, one of the problems is that some of the players are going to feel concerned that they don't have the reflexes or the strategy as the guy sitting next to them, and so they're kind of getting ripped off. But on a different level, you have the whole difficulty of getting what's known as the math model correct. Now, with a standard slot machine, all the manufacturer has to do is choose what's called a return to player, which is the amount of money that goes back to the gamblers over hundreds of thousands or even a million plays. But when some players are getting a higher return to player than others, the, the house has to be a lot more careful in, in finding out what's the sweet spot where the house is going to always win, so to speak, but the players are going to get enough return on their play to keep sitting there and keep pumping money into the machine. And that's that's proven very difficult. What do the people make of it? Is, is this ploy working? It's been mixed. Essentially, in certain places where the games have been introduced, they've produced more money than the standard slot machines. But sometimes that novelty wears off and the amount of money those machines are earning has kind of come back down to normal. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.